Okay, well today, I'm really excited. <clears throat> so today, we are starting our series on the book of Revelation. So buckle up. <laughs> no, actually, you know what? We, we aren't really venturing too far outside of the Bible on this. So guess what? In the Bible are things that back up the Bible, and that's the best way to study this stuff. So, so that's what we're doing. I don't have any new revelations or any insights or Jesus scooped me up and took me somewhere, and you know, I don't have any of that. But what I do have is what I know that comes out of this word. Amen? And we're going to study it. Um, what we're going to do is we'll do this for five weeks. And then we have what we call our, our Easter giving series. So for those of you that don't know, um, we take an, an offering, our entire Easter offering goes to the three foreign missions that we support, which is wheelchairs in Vietnam, water filters in the Amazon region of Brazil, and feeding children in Haiti. So every year, we give all of our Easter offering away to those three missions. And you know what? Last year you gave one of the biggest offerings ever. So I just want to put that plug in there because let's keep it going. Amen? <laughs> but today is an introduction to the book of Revelation. We're going to look at, we're, going, we're, we're just going to do an introduction. And then we're also going to uh, look at who wrote this book. So we have a little bit of an idea of who the person was that wrote it and, and what is the, the main premise of this book. The book of Revelation, all right? is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus and what we call the end times. Even people who are not believers believe that there's an end times coming, right? And there is an end times coming. And for some of us, it's a scary thought. I remember, I remember um, when 9-11 happened, right? And this was back when you would go to an actual bookstore to buy books. You remember that? You guys remember that? You'd, you'd buy these things that had paper in them, and then you would take them home and read them. It's weird. Yeah, it was weird. But, but anyways, I remember, and I was in there, and there was a guy in there, so it was, you know, September 11 happened, and everybody's freaking out and stuff, and this guy was trying to buy as many books on the end times as he could, because he wanted to tie that event into it. And I'm not too sure where he was in his faith, or even if he was a believer, I just know that he was searching for something. Amen? And so, so this entire book of Revelation is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus and the times to come, which is what we call the end times. And, and once we get out of this introduction and once we get a little further into this, into this uh, study, we'll see a little bit more about what these end times are all about. But this book was written by the disciple John or the apostle John, one of the 12 disciples. And in John's writing, in, the, in his gospel, and then he has some other writings, and then he writes the book of Revelation, he often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So either he was Jesus' favorite, or he thought he was. But that was how he referred to himself, and he also referred to himself as the beloved disciple, okay? Now, it is said that he may have been Jesus' favorite, but what we do know is he was a part of Jesus' inner three, okay? Jesus had three disciples that did things with him and saw things and he said things to that nobody else did. That was Peter and James and John. James and John were brothers. And then he had his 12, right? The 12 disciples. And then, you know, he had other disciples outside of that that followed him. So he had an inner core of three. Those are probably like his most trusted. 
Then he had the 12, and then he had those outside of that. So John was in this inner core of three. Now, the other thing about John is that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at John, and he told John to take care of his mother, Mary. So, so these are some indications that maybe he was Jesus' favorite, or at least there was a special bond of trust that Jesus had with John, you know, because he said, take care of my mom. You know, that's it's pretty special. You're asking somebody to take care of your mom. Um, so I believe there was some trust in that friendship that might not have been with any of the other disciples. There was a bond there. Maybe he was the favorite. Maybe he really was the one whom Jesus loved the most. Um, but here's what we do know, all right? If, if Beyond any of that, John had seen and heard everything that Jesus did while he walked on this earth firsthand. He was there for all of it. He was there for some of it that the other 12 didn't get to see. So there were some things about John that, that none of the others got to see. Now here is another interesting uh, fact that we, that we can read about. That it is said about John is that, so, so uh, all of the disciples, aside from Judas, Judas killed himself because he betrayed Jesus. The rest of them, the, of the 12, were executed for their faith in horrible ways, all right, after Jesus ascended into heaven. John was not. Now, they tried to execute him. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil, the Romans, but he survived. He came out unscathed. What do you think about that? <laughs> and so they, I, I'm assuming they couldn't figure out what to do with him from there on, so they banished him to an island called Patmos, which is kind of like our Alcatraz. It was a prison. And that's where he spent the rest of his days. And it's, it's said to be this really rocky island that, you know, they just, they, they put him there and there was impossible to escape. And when he wrote the book of Revelation, he was about 100 years old. Now, because of the style of writing in Revelation, there's a lot of imagery used. And it's, be, it's because of the particular style. But because of this, we tend to think that it's all symbolic because there's a lot of imagery there, right? And so some people say, well, I don't know if this is really going to happen or if this really could happen or if this might have already happened because of how symbolic it is, and it's just that. It's symbolic. Well, here's how I read the Bible, literally. I take it all literally, all right? And even the parts that we're going to read about in Revelation or even some of these visions the Old Testament prophets had that seem symbolic, there is a literal meaning behind them. You see what I'm saying? So, so when you keep it at that, I believe you keep yourself grounded in the Word of God and you don't, you don't go off into, you know, whatever land. Like you don't start buying into stuff that you don't really understand. You know what I'm saying? So, so also, as you'll see, the way we're going to do this is when we look at some of this imagery and things that might seem symbolic, we're going to put a literal definition behind it. So it makes a little more sense, all right? Because that, that's how I read it. So, um, so let's just start right off. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 the whole time. We're going to jump over to Daniel for a second. But we're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to read just the first two verses here. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ. That's how it starts out. Which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. 
He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so whatever you're reading from might read a little bit different, but it's all the same. It's the word of God. So here's the deal. The very first two verses of this book. This book is a revelation given by Jesus himself. Okay? From God the Father. So Jesus hears from the Father and he's given this revelation to John to show his servants what will take place. So who are his servants? Who here believes in Jesus? We are his servants. To show us what will take place. That's what this book is all about. John is faithfully reporting everything he saw. Okay? Everything he saw, not what he dreamt, not that he was in some kind of a trance and he envisioned all of this, not like a word picture. So a lot of times when I have a word of knowledge, I get a picture of something. I, I call that a word picture. Might get a little bit of a scene, but it, I wouldn't call it a vision. It's more like a word picture. These are things that John saw. Now, how did he see them? I don't really know. You know, like, was he just standing there and all of a sudden things opened up? Did he get transported? We know in the book of Acts, there were other people who got kind of raptured from one place to another supernaturally. So did he, did he go into the future? We don't know. What we do know is what John wrote down in his book is what he saw with his own two eyes. Okay? So that much we know. During the time John wrote this book, Christianity was under heavy persecution by the Roman emperor, and he addresses this in verse 9. But nonetheless, this book is not a book of doom and gloom. It is not a book that should scare us or frighten us as to what is to come in the end times. For followers of Jesus, Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book of hope, and it can seem scary, but it's not. It's hope. And what makes it so hopeful is that it unveils the purposes Jesus has for the future. The first purpose Jesus has for the future is the removal of all evil from the earth and the total destruction of Satan and his works. Yes. <laughs> that is the first purpose of the future that we see in this book. Now, remember, or maybe not remember, but the world that we live in right now is not the world that God wanted and intended for us to live in, right? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where, where, where death and disease and destruction and bad things and stuff happens that, that we, didn't, we, don't, we don't have any answers to, and we wonder why does it keep happening? Because, because this world is run by the devil. This is the devil's kingdom, church. This is his kingdom right now. See, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, was a created angel, and he had free will, okay? He was the most beautiful of all angels. He was the, the music director, the choir director, the worship leader in heaven. He was over the music in heaven. That was his role. But pride crept in, and Lucifer felt that he could do a better job than God. 
That's why pride is, is, is a, it's a nasty little thing that we can fall victim to, and that's what happened with Lucifer. And then what happened was he got a third of the angels to rebel against God with him. Now, I don't know exactly how all of this happened, right? I'm just going just, to talk to you like I'm talking at the kitchen table at home because, because this is how I kind of maybe wonder if it happened, all right? God is creating the universe, right? He does it in a literal 24-hour day, first day, second day, third day, right? He creates human beings. He creates all the animals, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants, all the stuff we see. And he's working over here, right? And Satan is over here in heaven rebelling, like when the boss is away, right? And, he... and God says, hey, you know what, bud? <laughs> if you think you can do better, and he banishes Satan and a third of the angels, which we now know are demons, to the earth. And I don't know if it happened during creation. I don't know. Satan was not here before creation took place. Okay? But at some point, he was banished to this earth, and that's how he tempted Adam and Eve. And so that's how sin and the fall of mankind entered this world. And Satan has been the ruler of this world ever since. Well, that sounds kind of harsh, Chip. How could he be the ruler of this world? Well, oftentimes I refer to that as from John chapter 8, but I'm mistaken. John chapter 8 is the greatest showdown that Jesus ever had with the religious leaders who hated him. And Jesus told them, your father is the devil, the father of lies. And boy, they, they just flew off the handle. But listen to this. In John chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Jesus says he's the ruler of this world. A couple chapters later, John 14, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me. So Jesus is kind of like saying, hey, listen, guys, there's going to be a time. You don't know what's happening. I'm going to get crucified. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to save the world you know, through my innocent shed blood, the forgiveness and, and all of that stuff. And the ruler of this world is going to approach, but I want you to know he doesn't have any power over me. And then 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes to them, Satan, who is the God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. See, people who don't believe or, or don't, don't understand the word of God, the love that Jesus has for them, have been blinded by the demons that run this earth. And it's us, church, who need to help shed light into that darkness. So those are three passages that we can see where the devil is the ruler of this world, for now. Now, the entire theme of this book, Revelation, is the second coming of Jesus and the events that lead up to that, okay? These are hopeful which brings us to the second purpose of the book, all right? The first purpose is to get rid of all the evil and to totally destroy Satan and his works. The second purpose is this, to reveal the deity of Jesus, that he is God. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three in one. They have different functions. The per second purpose of this book is to reveal the deity of Jesus. His full identity is revealed throughout the book of Revelation. And that's what we're going to look at today. See, these are hopeful events for all believers. 
as it signifies the time when all things will be in perfect harmony and evil will forever be conquered. There's Old Testament prophecies all about this. My my favorite one comes from Isaiah where he says, the lamb will lie down with with the lion, the child will put his hand in the viper's nest and not get bit. This will be perfect harmony the way it was originally intended to be. Now, what I find interesting is in verse 7, verse 7 could be John quoting from a, the vision, a vision that the Old Testament prophet Daniel had concerning the end days. Or it could just be John was writing this down and he's like, I'm, I'm just writing it as it's coming to me. And it's, it compares to what the vision that Daniel had. So I just, this is the only time we'll flip out of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to read it real quick. We'll refer to the book of Daniel quite a bit because he was an Old Testament prophet who had a lot of end time visions. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he has this vision here. And um, actually, the title of it is Daniel's Vision of Four Beasts. So as we get into Revelation, we'll kind of dig into this too. But check this out. In verse 13, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The son of man is Jesus. He approached the ancient one, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. All right? So that's the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And then John writes this. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. So either John was quoting something that he knew from the the Old Testament prophet Daniel or he was just writing stuff, and the Holy Spirit was like, write this down, because people are going to need, they're going to compare this. So, and then, everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. We don't know. That could be the Romans, the, the ones who nailed him to the cross. That could be the religious, the Jewish people. It could even refer to people who don't believe Jesus, right? Like, in our hearts, we pierce him. We nail him to that cross. So, so, Who knows? But everyone will see him. Here's the point I'm trying to make. He comes on the clouds of heaven. So I find it interesting, here's another thing too, that John quotes this as part of his greeting to the seven churches that Jesus wants to address, which we'll look at in the weeks to come in chapters two and three. Because, here's the thing, this is why I want want to highlight this part. This very same uh, scene is quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, coming on the clouds of heaven. But then, when Jesus was arrested, the night he was crucified, the religious leaders say, are you indeed the Messiah? And in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, I am, all capitalized. That means he's saying, I am God. Because the only other person who referred to himself as I am was God when he introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush when Moses was like, what is going on here? Who are you? 
I am that, I am who I am. That is God. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when he said that, the religious leaders tore their robes and freaked out and called him blasphemous. And, and they just, they were terrified. And they were so mad because he said he was God. And he referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, I share this with you because we can see that there are at least five times in the scriptures, five places where it states that Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven. So that's not symbolic, church. There's a literal meaning to that because as we see later on in Revelation, he will return and we will be with him on horses. And I want to be a part of that. Even though I'm afraid of heights, I think it's going to be, I mean, can you imagine? And he's going to come down and, and he's going to set up his kingdom. That's, we'll get to that later. But that's what he was telling the religious leaders too. And he was like, and I will judge you. So as we read further, okay, a little bit into this, this chapter here, John states that this all happened on the Lord's day when he was worshiping in the spirit. So the Lord's day at that time was Sunday. Um, Orthodox Jewish, Orthodox Jews, they worship on Saturday. That's their Sabbath. But the Lord's Day for Christians at that time became Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He was crucified and buried on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he rose from the dead. So they called that the Lord's Day. That's when they had church. And so John is worshiping in the spirit when this happens. What does worshiping in the spirit mean? I don't know. I think he was praying in tongues. He was praying in his prayer language. He was deep in worship. I mean, he's about 100 years old. He's in prison on an island, and it's Sunday. And he is focused on God, worshiping in the Spirit, okay? And let's read what happens in verse 10. I don't know. This is fascinating to me. I love this stuff. So, all right, ready? Revelation 1, verse 10. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said... Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was, was like the sun in all its brilliance. <clears throat> yeah, that, that deserves a little bit of a whistle. Like, yeah. <laughs> what are we looking at here? Well, let's break this down. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man, okay? And John knew this was Jesus. 
I mean, he's worshiping. Can you imagine, like, you're worshiping, like, like you're just, you're by yourself, and, and, like, when I'm caught up in worship, I start, like, singing in tongues and stuff, and all of a sudden, you turn around, and there's that. So the phrase, son of man, all right, is a way of describing Jesus for the humanity people experienced when he was a man who walked the earth, as well as the Messiah who is to come as the son of God in all his glory. That's who the son of man is. It's Jesus. This right here that we just read is what Jesus looks like in all his glory. Where's that blonde hair and blue eyes? That nice trimmed beard. That's not what he looks like, church. He looks like this right here. You see, here's the thing. Our finite minds, this side of heaven, can't grasp what things look like on the other side of heaven. God is a God of creativity. The things that we're going to experience when we're in heaven... We, we, we can't even comprehend. Our brains would explode. Like, for instance, in the book of Ezekiel, all right? The book of Ezekiel is what attracted me to the Bible because I was like, this stuff is crazy. I need, I, need, I need to read more. The prophet Ezekiel has this, this experience with an angel. And, and if those of you that know, it, it, just read it, look it up. But this angel was like a wheel within a wheel. And on these wheels were all these eyes and these four faces and all the, just this crazy looking creature that came to Ezekiel to deliver a message from God. A lot of people who don't really know the scriptures will say that, well, that was a UFO full of aliens that came to talk to Ezekiel. Well, I don't think so. That was an angel. You know, later on, we'll see in, in, in the throne of God, in Revelation, there's these angels that are called seraphim, and they circle the throne room of God, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and that's all they do is they circle the throne. Well, they've got four different faces and six wings and all of this just, just stuff that we couldn't comprehend. Like, if they walk into this room, I guarantee you, we would all run. We couldn't comprehend it. But see, God, he's creative. And so that side of heaven is going to be a little bit more than houses and mansions and streets paved of gold. It's going to be more than we ever, ever, ever could imagine. And this, church, is what Jesus looks like. This is not the Jesus that John walked with on the earth. The Jesus that we like to think about that's a pretty good-looking guy with a nice trimmed beard and long hair and a, a lamb on his shoulder because it's us he's carrying, right? It's the shepherd. and This is what he looks like, church. John knew it was, in fact, Jesus, as, as, as crazy as this, this picture is. The Son of Man, who is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the almighty one. You know why John knew this? Because John had seen Jesus in his glory once before. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, it's called the Transfiguration, and it's in Matthew chapter 17. Here's just a little snippet of it. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, 
And his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and they began talking. Now, I'm inclined to think that the sword out of his mouth and the eyes of fires weren't a part of this scene because it might have been a bit much. Peter starts freaking out and wants to build little huts for everybody and, and the other, they just fall out in the spirit and that's it. It was too much. But this was a little snippet that Jesus wanted his three, Peter, James, John, to see while he was on the earth. So John had, had once seen this. Now, okay, so the gold sash across his chest, let's, let's pick this apart, all right? Let's put some literal meaning behind what we're looking at here, because this is our Savior. The gold sash across his chest reveals him as the high priest who sits at the right hand of God, pouring out forgiveness to all those who ask for it, all those who put their trust in him. Hebrews chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to, boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This gold sash represents our high priest in heaven, Jesus. He walked the earth as a man, just like all of us, and dealt with all of the same temptations we did as a man. He didn't turn God powers on and off so that he wouldn't, you know, face these temptations. He walked them out just like you and I do. He understands every little thing that gets to you, every little weakness you have, every strength you have, everything that bothers you, everything that tempts you, everything that draws you to do things you shouldn't do. He understands it because he's been there himself, and that's why we need to boldly come to him and say, I need some help. Amen. That's who he is. Amen. Now, he had white a head and, white hair, and hair white like wool, as white as snow, like Uncle Chuck. <laughs> you know what that signifies? Wisdom and divine nature. Now, Prophet Daniel had the same vision. Check this out, Daniel chapter 7. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like the purest of wool. So, we can, we, can, we can do some cross-referencing here. Wherever the Bible says something, church, it backs it up. The eyes of fire represent judgment. Now, the picture we're seeing here could be Jesus standing within his church, all right, amongst them, amongst us. And here's the thing. He can see through every one of us. There's nothing that we can hide from him. Now, sometimes that's a little nerve-wracking thought, but here's the deal, church. He understands our weaknesses. As soon as we get that figured out, the better off we'll be because now we're not afraid to come to him with things that we fall victim to. He understands. So we need to come boldly to him. If you struggle with this, keep uh, Hebrews chapter 4 as a part of your life verse and say, I need to learn to come boldly to you, God. Help me not hide the things that I fall victim to so that I can receive the forgiveness and the fullness that you have for me. Hebrews chapter 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes and he is the one to whom we are accountable to. He sees it all, church. Like, we can hide things from 
people, we can hide things from ourselves. We can't hide. We think we hide things from Jesus. We can't. The sooner we get that figured out, the better off we can get where we need to be in life and where Jesus wants us to be, and then we'll be free. We'll be free of that stuff. Now, the feet, like polished bronze, represents stability, strength, and purity. Now, this image should stand as a reminder to us that even though at times it appears like the world is spiraling out of control, Jesus has it all under control. There is nothing happening that God is not putting into place or allowing to happen. There are leaders, world leaders, uh, uh, city leaders, uh, leaders in your workplace that God puts into place and God allows to have the position. Nothing is out of his control. He's never up there going, oh, Jesus, what do, what do we do? They, they weren't supposed to vote for him. Ooh, how are we going to do this? He puts people in positions and he allows people to be put in positions. And even when it feels like our personal lives are spiraling out of control, we have a Savior in Jesus who is always stable that we can always rely on. Look at the stability that he stands in. Feet like polished bronze, stable, strength, pure. Church, this image of Jesus right here is the Jesus that we are friends with. This is the Jesus that we pray to. This is the Jesus who pleads our case to the Father and pours grace, mercy, and forgiveness out to all of those who believe in him, all of those who put their trust in him. This is the Jesus who loves us beyond comparison. This is our king. His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, represents the power of his message, the power of his word. Now, I just need to know what that looked like. like but listen, his words cut through everything that exists, everything that ever was or will be. It's not just symbolic. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's the word of God. That's Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is Jesus. Amen. Amen. When prophesying, of the coming Messiah. So here's, this, the Bible is fascinating, church. Isaiah said this. I think this is right. He's speaking in the third person form. He's, he's, he's speaking as Jesus, and Jesus is talking about the Father. And he says this, Isaiah 49. Jesus saying, he, God, made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hid me in the shadow of his hand. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. 
So once again, Jesus, his words, the word of God is sharper than any sword, and it cuts through everything. And that's okay. That's what we want. That's what keeps us where we need to be. That's what helps God work out his plans that he has for us that he saw long before we were born. If we don't allow the conviction of his word to keep us where we need to be in life, then we become a little bit darker and a little bit darker and a little bit darker, and we hide from God like Adam and Eve did when they ate that fruit. This right here is a picture of our exalted king, the Messiah, the savior of the world, Jesus. This is what he looks like. This is the divine representation of what he looks like. This as mind-boggling as it is, is our comforter. This is who protects, guides, and leads us through life. He is a friend to those who trust him. And so we'll finish up uh, the rest of this chapter real quick, starting in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Yeah, I bet. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then verses two and three, he addresses those churches. We'll get into that later. John falls at Jesus' feet as if he were dead, probably trying to comprehend what is going on, what is happening. But what does Jesus do? He puts his right hand on him. He says, hey, John, it's me. And so I'm just paraphrasing. It's me. Look, I, I died, but I'm here. This is me in all my glory. The seven golden lampstands, it was said that they were like menorahs, the Jewish candles, all right? That's what these look like. They represent the seven churches that Jesus wants to address. And we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. The stars represent seven angels. Another word for an angel is messenger, which means the stars represent the messengers for each church. Now, some say the stars represent an angel that is guarding those churches. That's the easier thing to think of. I do believe that God places angels. I believe there's angels guarding this church. I believe it with all my heart. I believe there's angels guarding every church. But there's a battle going on in the spirit realm, on Sunday mornings especially. And there's more than just angels in here. <laughs> but listen to this. If an angel is a messenger, and these seven stars represent the messengers for the church, and considering the content of these letters, the stars more than likely represent the one who is bringing the message to the church the pastor. He wants to address the pastors of these churches. The pastor brings the message. Listen, the apostle Paul said that he works out his faith in fear and trembling, right? That didn't mean that he was afraid of Jesus and he was constantly like, oh, I don't know where he's going to be next. It meant that he did his best 
to work out his faith and to do the calling and to run the race that God set before him. And I'm going to tell you something, church. This is the stuff that I live by and I take seriously. Because if we don't pay attention to what the Word of God says, we are not working out our faith with fear and trembling. As a pastor, I'm the one that has to look at Jesus eye to eye. And I just want him to say, well done. And I'm doing my best. And I'm doing my best to teach you and to lead you and to help you in your walk with God. We're behind you, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. We're behind you. <laughs> But I take this stuff serious, church, and that's why we're going to get into this. So, so we will dive into this in the weeks to come, these letters. And so in closing, all right, my question is this, who is Jesus to you? Like after we just, what we just read, he's, he, he is a shepherd, okay? But this is him in all his glory. He's not the big guy in the sky, He's not, uh, what's the other one we call him? The man upstairs. He is, well, he is that picture that John saw. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the one who is to come. He is in our midst, church, watching over his followers helping us, leading us. He is our high priest who meets our every need. He heals our every wound and he fights every battle that we will ever face for us. That's who that is. Okay, so that is not a scary picture. Think of this. How would you like that fighting your battle for you? Eyes of fire and feet like bronze and a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't have to do anything but ask him to stand in the gap for me. That's who Jesus is. Whom shall we fear when we have Jesus? He has the last word in history, and he has the last word in our story as well. And there is hope to be found in our king, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll pray for our offering, and then we got one more song. So, God, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you so much that although there is some mystery in you, God, you take that mystery away for your followers so that we know what was, what is, and what is to come, and it's all in your word. And I pray in these weeks to come and in this series, God, that all of us as a church come closer and closer and closer to you in our relationship. Church, I just, I just, I just have this sense to tell you, encourage you, stop hiding things from God. He already knows. He is your savior. He is your comforter. He's your high priest. You know, you know here's, here's the thing. The things that we fall victim to that we're afraid to talk to God about or others about, Jesus can conquer. And you envision that picture right there. You read Revelation chapter 1 and you say, Jesus, I need you to take care of this for me. I just encourage you, church, 
I don't know who needed to hear that, but that's your word. And so, God, I thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what we're about to, to understand and to look at as we move further into this series. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.